Thanks, Graham. It's always great to be able to go to other places and uh, preach and, and meet different people. And so I am able to be here with my family this morning. Uh, my wife and I have June, I think it was 21 years of marriage. Uh, so we were high school sweethearts, and we've got three kids. Uh, Kylie, our oldest, is a eighth grader in White House, and then we've got a first grader, Ophi, and uh, our youngest just started kindergarten this year all in White House. And so, yeah, 21 years, a lot has happened, a lot has changed. I was talking to a guy the other day, uh, been married over 50 years, and uh, he was always a jokester, so I was talking with him, and I said, 50 years, that's amazing. He said, I know it. He said, you want to know the secret? And I was like, well, sure, we've made it 21, but I take all the help I can get. And he said, well, on our one-year anniversary of our wedding, we went to Hawaii. I thought, wow, that's great. And he said, on the 49th anniversary, I went back and picked her up. And uh, so we, we didn't follow that advice. Um, so, but it, God has been gracious to us. Uh, my whole family is in the ministry. I was going to be the black sheep and do something differently, but God would not leave me alone. My dad is a pastor in uh, Calvary Baptist Church uh, in Henderson, Texas. I've got a brother that's a pastor in the Weatherford area, a brother-in-law that is a pastor in Oklahoma, and uh, we went to four different pastors. We have four different seminaries represented at Thanksgiving, so that's always interesting. Uh, but there are many things I love to talk about. Being from Arkansas, I could teach you all how to call the hogs. Uh, love the outdoors. Um, would rather probably hunt and fish than most things. Uh, but there's things that I love to talk about. One of those is the idea of household discipleship. So I was a person that grew up in the church. Uh, but I would also say there wasn't a lot of things that really happened in the home. My mom would do some things from time to time, really trying to do some things, and it lasted about a week or so, and then we just get busy doing different things. But the idea of household discipleship is something that is very important to me. I, I want to do it well. As Graham said, I often feel like a failure, so I can relate to him in that. But I want to do this well. But there's a lot of areas about discipleship. I, know of a little bit about fellowship, getting to know Graham and the church here, that I would say as I walked in, as I've been to your website, that discipleship is at the heart of what you want to do. In fact, you say it this way, that you want to escort people to Christ, and we see the idea of evangelism. You want to establish them in truth, so teaching and, and raising people up, and then equip them for serving in ministry. And that, that is the idea of discipleship. But I want to talk about it a little bit differently because oftentimes when we think about discipleship, we think of teaching and classes and I know fellowship, you is coming up. And listen, those things are vitally important. But there is another aspect of discipleship. I think oftentimes we might do it or we might not, but sometimes we can almost overlook it when, if we're not really careful. But I do want to talk about it in the realm of generational discipleship. But I, I, generational discipleship, I would define it several different ways. Um, but I want to use a word picture. I, I brought my trunk with me, and this is a trunk I've kept. And you, you actually have a trunk just like you just didn't know to bring yours this morning. But some of ours, you're young, and so your trunk's not really big. And some of you are old, and... I'm getting there, and yours has got a few more nicks and scrapes, and some of the hinges don't work like they used to. And, but this trunk represents kind of who I am. In fact, this trunk holds a lot of things 
that have helped shape who I am as a person. And there's a lot of stuff in here. And uh, there are things... Uh, here's, here, we'll start with this because this is kind of where I began. So this is my, one of my baby books. And I know I was cute as could be. And, uh, but there are lots of things in here. You know, pictures growing up, celebrating birthdays and Easter's and going to Grandma's house and all these things, making straight A's all the time. And, uh, you know, just all kinds of stuff. I have no idea what that is. We'll pass on by that. Um, but there's just all kinds of things in this that would define who I am. Many things. Um, as I look through this trunk, uh, I don't know why my mom kept this, but... Uh, she always wanted me to dress really cool and hip, and uh, maybe she wanted me to be a biker. I don't know. And I must have lost my clothes a lot because everything I had had my name on it. Um, but you know, it just it defined who I am. I can remember being in my very first school play, and my mom saved my suspenders from that play. But parents do things because I can see it. You do things sometimes that scar your children. And my dad. Thought it would be a great idea. My dad, being a pastor, is always worried about what people thought. And my hair always typically was a little bit longer than probably most liked. And But the night before school pictures, my dad, who has never cut anyone's hair, thought it would be a good idea to cut mine. And what we've learned is that when you wet someone's hair and then you cut it, guess what? It, it shortens. And he must have cut that with like a level. And uh, But you, parents do things that scar your children. So, growing up, I was defined, I am a very proud Ozark hillbilly, and yes, that was our mascot, but those very awkward teenage years, and uh, we captured all of that with pictures. Um, I can remember my mom was one she read to us all the time. My favorite book, Go Dogs Go, uh, was a great book. Um, everybody should read that one. Um, what else is in here? Um, I love, being from Arkansas, love to hunt and fish. Um, if you could find me anywhere, you would have found me on the baseball diamond. Baseball was my sport. My mom wanted me to be well-rounded and uh, thought I should take piano lessons. And I took piano lessons, I believe I made it about eight days, um, because the baseball diamond, so the movie Sandlot's actually a documentary of my life, that the baseball diamond was between me and the piano teacher's house. And I'm telling you, there was just a force that just pulled me in and I knew that I only had about 16 minutes that I was supposed to be there, and all of a sudden I knew I had 16 minutes to play, and then I'd see my dad's car coming up the road. And so it didn't last very long. Uh, different things in here. Oh, I can remember uh, had an uncle that gave me my very first pocket knife. Uh, had a grandfather. One of my grandfathers, he wasn't real involved in our lives, but I'll never forget, he was a builder. And... I remember one time he actually took me uh, to a job site and worked on a school together. And I can still remember that, thinking that was one of the coolest days of my life, getting right in a work truck and Grandma packed our lunches and, and going to that, that place and working and hammering and working hard with him. Um, I can remember uh, my dad uh, was diagnosed with uh, uh, kidney failure. And I was 10 days... Uh, from going to be the kidney donor for my dad. And the doctors noticed something, so they halted that process, and they were able to change some things about his medications that uh, I never had to go through that. But I remember thinking for the first time, life's about to change. Um, oh, I can remember uh, old passport traveling to places like Mexico on mission trips and 
Ukraine. Oh, I can remember uh, our oldest daughter. Uh, for several years, we suffered with infertility, uh, and we adopted her from Buckner. And man, that has just been something that has really defined. Uh, who we are, then getting to travel to Ethiopia, adopt our second daughter, and then God blessed us biologically with a son. Oh, I remember running my very first marathon, and we thought it would be cool on a Sunday. It was in Tyler. My pastor actually was preaching through that passage and uh, where Paul says, run the race, and so we thought, let's call Mark. And Man, so we had it set up, and man, I crossed that finish line, and they called me, and I was weeping like a baby. And uh, But I can remember, I mean, it defined who I am. Uh, I can look in here at my my license to the gospel ministry and uh, saved this. Uh, My wife's photo in the newspaper, they didn't put mine in there for some reason, and um, but wedding, a candle from our wedding, I mean, that was a big moment defining, you know, who who I was. Uh, Looking all in here, I mean, there's just things like uh, my grandfather's pipe and uh, that smell of, of that, that tobacco in, in when I was around him and going to Christmas and Thanksgiving and just that warm feeling helped define that family was important. Uh, my dad, um, when I left home, uh, went to college, pulled me aside and he gave me a money clip. There was no money in it, but he gave me a money clip. But I can remember him just taking a moment. My dad really didn't share his emotions a lot growing up, but... Uh, just took a moment to tell me he was proud of me. And, uh, and so there are things about that, that just shape who we are, some good and some bad. I can, you were singing the song, we were, uh, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. And uh, my youngest sibling is a, a girl, a sister, and uh, she was pregnant with uh, their first child and uh, went in on a Wednesday to everything checked out. It was going to go Friday to have the, the child. And uh, Thursday something happened, and Elijah was... It was stillborn. And, uh, but being in that funeral home and singing that song, Blessed be the name of the Lord you give and you take away. And there are just things that shape who we are. And so I want to use Psalm 145 to talk about the idea of generational discipleship and your trunk. Generational discipleship is simply the idea of one generation reaching and touching and teaching and training the next generation to know the wondrous works of God and to passionately pursue Christ. But there's a danger, and we don't often think about it. Because we get comfortable, I do. We tend to go through our routines. I I love my routine. But we don't think about that we are really always just one generation away from a group that doesn't know who God is. Turn on your TV this past weekend. Man, the worship of one man was on every channel. Man, discipleship was happening. Because there were young children being trained that this is who we're watching and this is who we're concerned about. And we, in some ways, I may not say it, but we're worshiping this, this man. But there's a danger. In fact, you could, if we had time, you could go to Judges 2, verse 10, where it says, And all the generations were also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them that did not know the Lord, or the work that he had done for Israel. We're always one generation away, and we're always at that point. So let's look at Psalm 145. I want to read those four verses again, and then we'll walk down through them. It says this, I extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever 
and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And may God bless the reading and the teaching of His Word this morning. Psalm 145 is the first psalm in a collection of psalm praises or uh, Psalm 145 to the end of all of the psalms. Or we have these psalms that are just praising God, but it sits, 145 sits at a bridge. 145 sits at the breaking point, the psalms before it talk about, and focus on that crisis of being exiled, and the pain and the struggle. Then Psalm 145 begins a bridge of moving from that, focusing on who God is and praising His name. So it sits between these two monumental things, in between the good and the bad. And they're crying out for help and praising God in His goodness. All between uh, held is Psalm 145. Verse 1 says again, I extol you, extol you, O my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. So this is David talking and, and writing and singing. And he vows to exalt or to lift up or to talk about or to make much of God his King. David saw God as his creator. He saw him as the one that he was living for. And David was committing to blessing God's name forever and ever. I can imagine what it was like to walk and talk with David or sit down and share a meal or travel somewhere with him. He was probably someone at this point in his life that if you were to spend any time with David, you would have known what was most important to him. Because it would have been quick from his mouth. He would talk about what is most important. And that is so true of us. We will talk about what is most important to us and to our families and to me personally. I mean, you come to my house and there will be a conversation about the green egg. It's just going to happen. There is only one grill and it is the green egg. I mean, it just happens. You come, I'm going to talk about it because that's important to me. But we will talk about what is most important for us. And isn't that a soul-wrenching question? When people have lunch with you, when they travel with you in a car, when they sit with you at a ball game, when they walk away, what would they say is most important to you? It'd be interesting to think, and do not do this, but, uh, man, it'd be frightening to think, man, if you were to go up to any of my children at one point and say, what's most important to your dad? And you would hope, I would, say, I would hope they would say Christ and God's Bible, the Scriptures, and following after Him. But then it would be interesting to think and sometimes convicting of what they would say is most important to us. But for David, I believe at this point, we would know this is what he was after. This is what he was pursuing. Look at verse 2. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever. Endeavor. So David continues this vow that he will bless and praise the name of the Lord, not just on this day or the next or the next, but he says, for all eternity, I am going to praise your name. So what does this tell us about David? One, he tells us that he had a perspective that I know I need more of, and I believe you do also. David was reminding himself and his readers that this world is not his home. He was reminding everyone and himself that he was fighting for an eternal perspective. I mean, you think about the things that, that come into your life that just rob you of joy. I know I have them. You know, you can hear 
you know, 99 compliments and it's that one negative comment that, that you just can't seem to shake. And we live for a lot of things and we strive for a lot of things and we put value in a lot of things. If we would just simply stop and remind ourselves, man, there is something greater to come. This world here, if this is all there is, if this is as good as it gets, man, we are without hope. But David... He had an eternal perspective, and he was fighting for it. So are we teaching our children to have an eternal perspective and not put value in to their clothes or to the things that are around them or, or to what people might say? And listen, we, we know it is hard. Man, you can own a, a new car, a new truck, and man, that first scratch just seems to just drive you crazy. You buy the new phone and all of a sudden there's a new one coming out and we want that one. And then we can get so wrapped up to think that this is all there is. And, and if we're not careful, we lose sight of that eternal perspective. But David was fighting for it. Look at verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. So first David is showing us that This is what's important to me, that I'm going to praise my God and my King. And I I not only want to do it today, but I want to do it forever. He wanted that eternal perspective. But he wanted to give us some insight into what that is going to be. David is saying that you can discover many things about God. But there will be so many more that we will never reach the end of knowing who God is. You know, you can be married for 21 years and you still find yourself discovering things about each other. But man, for all eternity, meaning if you are in Christ, if Christ is the one you are putting your hope and your trust in to make you right before God the Father, when you breathe your last breath here on earth, you begin an eternity of searching the depth and the beauty of who God is and you will never run out of things to discover about him. So David is now going to give us a command. He's going to drive this home, this idea of generational discipleship. So David sets it up that there's a God, there's a king, and he is the one I'm chasing. He is the one I'm pursuing. He sets it up to say, I'm going to bless him forever and ever, meaning you and I were created to live forever. Forever I was created, and God has given me children that they were created to live forever, and for some reason, He has set me up to be the one that sets them on that trajectory. Then David says that we will praise His name and and search His greatness that is unsearchable. And then in verse 4, He says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. So one generation shall commend your works to another. So let's talk about this word, commend, because it's, it's really unique. It's, it's got such deep meaning to it. The idea of commending means that you're going to pronounce and you're going to boast about something that someone else now also wants that. When you talk about this idea of commending your works to somebody, it's not just talking with your mouth to say, oh, this is what is happening, you need to know this. It's got this word picture of someone actually branding someone. Now, we wouldn't do that. Don't do that to your children. But 
branding them, meaning you are doing something, in fact, that it affects them in some way that they cannot escape it. And he says we're to do this to the next generation, to pass on this knowledge, not by just what we say, but we are to pass this on, we are to declare it, we are to commend it with our passions. So you proclaim it with your words, but you also proclaim it by what you are passionate about. You know, as much as we would love it, our children will not retain everything we've taught them. My parents did the best they could, and man, I don't remember everything they taught me. I remember some things. I remember things like, you know, hold your fork right. Um, I can remember, you know, no matter what you're doing, you know, do the best that you can. Oh, I'll never forget, I was mowing yards, and I mowed my neighbor's yard, and I guess she was not happy, and so she called my dad, and man, my dad marched me right back down there. I had to give that money back and made me do it all over again. But trying to teach me that whatever you do, do it to the best of your ability. And so we, they will not retain everything that we teach them, but they will pick up on what is most important to us. They're going to pick up on that. I've got a friend has has a great way of saying it. He says, I want to live my life in a way that I can honestly look at my children and eventually my grandchildren, and I can say to them, if I value it, you can value it. If I, if I sacrifice for it, you can sacrifice for it. If I chase after it, you can chase after it. If it is something um, that, that I am going to give to, you can give to. If it's something that I stay away from, you need to stay away from. What he was saying is that what I value, I'm realizing what I value, what I chase after, what I sacrifice for, that my children will do the same. And so David is saying that we need to live in a way that we are commending them. We are teaching them with our words, but with our passions to the point that they then want that for themselves. So what I want to do, I want to talk directly to just a few groups of people. Because I'm afraid if we're not careful, we can easily slip into raising a generation that if they know God at all, it'll be very little. And we'll be raising a generation who are nominal Christians at best. And we cannot lose sight of this. So parents, let me start with us. I asked, what are we leading and teaching our children to? Meaning we can spend a lot of time teaching our children a lot of good things. And forget about the most important things. I mean, good things like teaching our children to fit into society. I mean, that's a good thing to do. Throw a curveball. Work a soccer ball. Do this or that. And listen, there are some good things, but if we're not careful, are we really making sure that they are saturated with the truth of who God is and what He has done in the gospel? Do they know that is the most important thing? Or is church just an extracurricular activity that we do when nothing else seems to get in its way. Several years ago, a prayer for my children changed because of this idea. It was actually a story by the famous missionary Jim Elliott. You've probably heard of Jim Elliott. He was a young man that was born in 1927, went to Wheaton College, and then he joined five other missionaries that went to evangelize a group of people in Ecuador, an unreached group. 
They flew in, they established camp, and they began taking these journeys into the bush to, to try to build relationships with the people there. But on January of 1956, Jim and four of his partners were found murdered on a beach in a remote jungle area. Jim was one of those one, one of those people that we would say gave his life for the gospel and to make God's wondrous works known to the next generation. If you know the end of the story, his wife goes back with several others and, and one by one people in that village begin responding to the gospel. But at the young age of 22, Jim talks about that there were a lot of people who didn't understand his passion for the gospel. Jim was a really had a promising missionary life or any fact in the United States he could have probably have grown to great heights uh, during the churches he could have lived a comfortable life he could have stayed in the states probably been a successful pastor evangelist and even teacher in fact his parents were not very excited about his call to the jungles of Ecuador they wrote him and uh, they found this letter that he wrote back to them in his journal and this is what it said to my beloved parents. I do not wonder that you are saddened at the word of my going to South America. This is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned us about when He told His disciples that they must become so infatuated with His kingdom and following Him that all allegiances must become as though they are not. And He never excluded the family tie. In fact, those that we regard as closest, he told us, must become as hate in comparison with our desires to uphold his cause. See, we need to make sure we are raising up a generation that will love God and treasure him above everything else. So this is my prayer for my kids, is that they would get to the place that they would treasure Christ above all else, meaning that there isn't anything this world could ever offer them. You could give them money, you could give them prestige, you could give them possessions and homes and cars, but there isn't anything that this world could give them that they would give up Christ for. And that's what I want to raise them to. But I know as a parent that it starts with me, that that has to be my uh, mindset, that has to be my goal, that has to be what I am pursuing, or they have no chance in that. So parents, it is a responsibility to disciple and to lead our children. So I want to give you three things. One, there is no one on this planet that is better suited to lead your child to Christ than you are. How do I know that? Why do I believe that? It's because if God had better parents in mind, He would have put your children in their home. Meaning that God has hand-picked you to be the ones to introduce who He is to those children that you are the mother and the father of. He's hand-picked you for that. The second one is you don't have to be perfect parents to faithfully disciple your children. Because if you could be perfect, your children wouldn't need a Savior. But you don't have to be perfect. What we get to do, and it's a wonderful thing, it's, it's in our mistakes. It's when 
we make those huge mistakes, when are those times of anger, when we're unloving, when we're cruel with our words, God is there with all the grace we need. And it's in those moments that we fail that God gets to illuminate our need for Christ and that speaks volume to our children. So the third one, parents, you're not alone. God has not put you on an island. He has given you the church. And I know as a parent, and man, I'm trying to be intentional, but listen, I need the church to come alongside me because there are times I feel like I cannot do this. So what does that mean for everyone else? So whether you're a parent of young children, maybe a teenager, I know there are some here, maybe you're single, maybe you're married without children, divorced, single parents, or even empty nesters. This command from David is not just to parents. It was to everyone that was hearing and seeing and reading this. In fact, God wants us all to work together to raise up a generation that will follow His Son no matter the cost. And that takes everyone working together. Does it begin at home? Absolutely. But they need the support of the church. And there are numerous ways this could happen. So preparing over the last several weeks, I, I thought, that I'm just going to write some down that just come to the top of my head. I mean, you know what? There are children, even in your midst, that would love to have a grandparent. I mean, maybe there's live far off, or maybe there's are not very involved in their life, and they would love to have someone step into their life and to love and support them, almost as if they are their grandchildren. Man, there's a young married couple in your church that would love for an older couple to invite them over for dinner, just to sit, to hear their story, to see their pictures, just to hear of God's faithfulness in their life. Can you imagine what that would do to encourage that young married couple that would love to have somebody to ask for advice? Man, there are teenagers here. You would love to have someone older to take an interest in them, to go to their ball games, to be at their performances, to, to just let them know that they're noticed and they're important to someone that would send them birthday cards. There are teenagers that would love to know that they matter to someone. Man, there are young babies in the nursery that would thrive for people just to rock them, sing to them, tell them God loves them. I mean, there are elementary children that would love to know that there are other people around them that speak to them every time they come in to these doors. There are children that would just love to know there's somebody that cares about them. How do I know this? It's because I was one of them. I was that young baby crying in the nursery. I was that energetic elementary kid. I was that awkward, confused teenager. I was that young married man that needed an older man in his life. I was that new parent that was scared to death and was even afraid to ask for help. But God is sovereign. He is gracious, and He knew I would need people. And so there are some things in this trunk that probably helped shape me almost more than anything. One of them is who I lovingly call 
Granny Grew. Granny Grew has passed away on my 16th birthday, driving in from Henderson to visit them, and she would been to the grocery store to buy all the grandkids their favorite things to eat and had a massive heart attack right there in her living room. I mean, this woman was a loving mother and grandmother who I saw make church a priority. She taught that Sunday school class. When we would go stay with her, she would take us to vacation Bible school. I knew from a young age that church was important. I watched her remain faithful to a man that was unfaithful. I watched her show love and appreciation to everyone around her, and she was an example in my life of faithfulness. Oh, I can remember Jim Young. Jim Young was the man that taught my junior high Sunday school class, and we were just a room full of punks. We sat on that back row and leaned our chairs back because we were too cool for everything. Mr. Jim was so faithful to that group of boys. I think he missed two Sundays a year to go bird hunting, which we knew was okay. But he was a dairy farmer. But you know what he would do? He would invite these boys every year that were in his class to his farm to fish, to be around his dairy, I mean, there was something, a, a young boy standing in that dairy watching him work. He would invite our dads to come out and help him work cows. I mean, that was Jim Young, and he was just someone that I knew loved people. And he worked hard. Oh, I can remember Tommy Dyer. Tommy Dyer was an older classman than me. I was in junior high, and Tommy was the star linebacker for the Ozark Hillbillies. Everyone in that town knew Tommy. Tommy uh, was probably one of the most outspoken Christians I'd ever known. Tommy took an interest in me. Tommy took a confused, awkward, pimple-faced little boy. And I can remember walking into basketball games with the Tommy Dyer. Man, I can't tell you what that meant. He would, he would invite me over, I'd spend the night, and we'd go squirrel hunting. I mean, I just knew that Tommy was somebody that I wanted to grow up to be like. I mean, from Tommy, I learned that it's okay to stand up for the truth, even if you're ridiculed for it. And then two men special to me. I can remember Steve Butler, still the music pastor of, of Calvary Baptist Church in Henderson, and Dwayne Knight. He was a teacher in our local school. This music pastor and this teacher saw a uh, confused teenager that was going to do anything to fit in. They picked me up three days a week from school, and we would go run. That's all we did. We would run. We'd run a few miles several days a week, and then we'd pick a race ever so often, and we'd get together at their house for a big spaghetti supper, and we'd get up early on a Saturday morning, and we'd go run a race. And I would listen to these men um, talk about their marriages. As they were running, they were memorizing Scripture. These were two godly men that I thought, that's a man. So God has used these people to make me who I am today. And they probably never heard the word generational discipleship, that they were living it. And what they were doing, they were simply just investing in my life. They were living their lives for Christ. 
and allowing me just to be a part of it from time to time. I was just in a, a small section of their journey. But I saw what it meant to be faithful, forgiving, how to stand up for the truth of the gospel, the power of prayer, that God's Word is the most important influence in our lives, how you must fight for your marriage even when it's hard, how to trust God when life falls apart and nothing makes sense. So you know what? You, you all have a trunk. In fact, everybody does. And God has used these people, and I know you have people in your life that have shaped who you are. But will there be another generation that one day is going to open their trunk that they could have a picture of you? Someone that took an interest in you. There's a young baby that's growing up here that they're going to have a trunk that will your picture be in. There's a young teenager here. There are empty nesters. There are people all around us. And will there be people that they would pull out a picture of you and say, they have no idea the impact they had on my life. So to be a, an effective and healthy church, you and I need to passionately pursue the mission of escorting people to Christ, establishing them in truth, and equipping them for service. And not just for this generation, but for the second and the third and the fourth that would pursue Christ and treasure Him above all else. A healthy church is one that is building something that will outlive them. And we do that by investing in the generations to come. Because you know what? Steve and Dwayne and Granny Grew and Jim, they invested in my life, but you know what? They also invested in the lives of my children and their children and their children. That's generational discipleship. Let's pray.